Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. We have a special essay this week entitled, Like Lambs Among Wolves, Gospel Reflections on the Temptation of Violence. This is a guest essay by Sarah Miles, the author of the new book, Take This Bread, A Radical Conversion. Sarah is the Director of Ministries at St. Gregory of Nyssa Episcopal Church in San Francisco, where she founded the Food Pantry. Her essay is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July the 8th, 2007. Long before I was a Christian, I was a reporter, and I specialized in writing about military affairs, specifically revolutionary wars and the ways they played out on the ground in the third world. Writing about and living in such wars absorbed me totally. I used to feel ashamed that I found so much joy in the midst of the violence and dirt and ugliness. Some of it, I think, was the simple adrenaline thrill of danger and a guilty but very real happiness about coming out alive. Plenty of it, I admit, was romance. But another piece was the intensity of connection that collective experience, even terrible collective experience, provides. The powerful intimacy of sharing life and death together. What I learned in these moments of danger and sorrow in many countries informs my Christian faith now. It was a feeling of total community with others, experienced through the common fact of our mortal bodies. We all had bodies that could suffer and be killed. We all had hearts that could stop beating in an instant. This solidarity had nothing to do with nationality, nothing to do with worldly power. In war, I looked at other different people and saw them face to face, and in seeing them, I felt a we. Never was that feeling stronger than when ordinary people took me into their homes and offered me food and drink and rest. In El Salvador, a priest gave me cookies. In the Philippines, a peasant woman gave me fish. The impulse to share hospitality is basic and ancient, and it's no wonder all the old stories teach that what you give to a stranger, you give to God. Over and over, despite the poverty of the places I visited, despite the grief my nation had brought upon their nation, Strangers welcomed me, and in the middle of war, I found peace. In South Africa in the early 1990s, apartheid was in its final throes. The white state with its security forces and death squads was unleashing violence upon black people at an unprecedented rate. I had been in the country for about a week when a friend from the African National Congress Menzueli took me to cover what the government officially called, quote-unquote, unrest. I rented a cruddy little car 
and stuck a notebook in my pocket. Mzwelly took nothing but a bandana to wipe the sweat off his face. We set off. It was ten in the morning in Alexandra Township, just outside of Johannesburg. The sun was already scorching, beating down on the rutted road. A dozen people had been killed overnight, and more disappeared or were arrested. Everyone was terrified. Mzwelly and I drove very slowly through the homemade barricades that were mushrooming at intersections. We got out of the car at one point and stood next to a boy with an open wound on his arm. His chest was heaving up and down from running as he faced a semicircle of gigantic police tanks. There were acrid blasts of tear gas and smoke from burning tires. I could see a line of armored personnel carriers descending a hill towards us. People scattered, running down alleys and dodging out of sight of the army. There was a rush of voices and a sound of breaking glass somewhere close by. And then the shooting started. I stumbled. A grandmotherly woman in a flowered skirt standing at the door of her shack beckoned urgently to us. Come here, she said. Mzwelly deposited me inside, saying he'd be back. See, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Luke 10, verse 3. I've seldom been as visibly an outsider as I was in Alexandria that day. A foreigner, the wrong color, someone whose very presence meant danger for the people around me. The woman calmly motioned me to sit down at her kitchen table under a print of Jesus, a calendar, a broken clock. She took, she took some spoons and mugs off a shelf and said thoughtfully, I think we should kill a lot of white policemen, maybe 15, 20 white policemen. Then they'll stop this business. Then the woman smiled at me pouring the hot, dark tea from a banged-up kettle. She stirred sweetened condensed milk into my cup, humming under her breath. Here, my dear friend, drink it, she said. I had no idea that what was settling upon me in that moment as I sipped my tea and traced my finger over the pattern in the linoleum was, in fact, the peace of God. But I knew the woman's offer of peace was stronger than anything I was afraid of. The gunfire and the shouting were still there outside, but in that kitchen some other power prevailed. And so Jesus said, Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide. The kingdom of God is very near. Luke 10 verses 7 and 9. In the late afternoon, Minzueli came back for me, and we walked over into the township stadium, where 10,000 unarmed people were gathering for a march, despite police orders to the contrary. The stadium was ringed by tanks with gun mounts on their turrets, riot police vans, armored cars, policemen with pistols and army troops with automatic rifles white soldiers with tear, tear gas grenade launchers and black police with shotguns. 
plain, plain clothes cops with radios, sharpshooters, dog handlers, and spies. There remains on our earth, have you noticed, the very real threat of principalities and powers. There remains the temptation to see ourselves as special, others as less than human, to kill in the name of the nation and the tribe. Satan has fallen like lightning, but the armies of empire are not destroyed. And still, says Jesus, the kingdom of God is very near. A helicopter hung overhead. The police bullhorn bleated at us to disperse. Watch, said Manzueli, and through the haze of smoke I saw a ten-year-old girl, her dress whipping around her knees, dancing in front of the tanks. Out of nowhere, out of everywhere, people began to sing in harmony and clap. And with a deep collective sigh, the whole crowd began to move forward, singing out of the stadium, dancing toward Calvary, the place of the skulls. The kingdom of God, said Jesus, is very near. Entering that kingdom is as simple as welcoming a stranger into your home and saying, peace be with you. Entering that kingdom is also as difficult as welcoming a stranger into your home and saying, Peace be with you. The air is full of tear gas, and the streets of this world are full of broken children. And yet, the kingdom of God is very near. In South Africa 15 years ago, in Baghdad this afternoon, in a hundred slums tonight where armies and gangs rage, the Son of Man is going up to be glorified. He's walking with the disciples directly into the line of sharpshooters, leaving behind violence and the temptations of power. She is contemplating revenge, rejecting it, offering a stranger a cup of tea as she prepares to be killed. He is refusing to strike the prisoner. She is bandaging the burnt child. He is turning his back on the empire, the nation, the flag, the tribe. There's violence all around us, but Christ is here and we are singing. Lord, kingdom come. Alleluia. And now for further reflection. Where and when have you felt like a lamb among wolves? How have you experienced the temptations of violence? Why is the king entering the kingdom both simple and difficult? And for further reading, see the book by Chris Hedges, the title War is a force that gives us meaning. A guest essay by Sarah Miles, Like Lambs Among Wolves. For books this week, 
I review a book by Colin Murphy called Are We Rome? The Fall of an Empire and the Fate of America. New York, Houghton Mifflin, 2007, 262 pages. Comparisons between Rome and America are as old as our founding fathers, and thus the picture of Horatio Greenenough's marble statue of George Washington on the cover of this book. He looks like a Roman Caesar in his toga. Today, triumphalists celebrate the comparison between Rome and America and want to export us as a model to the world. While on the other hand, declinists lament the similarities and warn us about overextension, arrogance, and fall. But are we really Rome? Colin Murphy, former managing editor of the Atlantic Monthly for 20 years and currently editor-at-large at Vanity Fair, stakes a middle ground. In a thousand specific ways, he writes, the answer is obviously no. But in a handful of important ways, the answer is certainly yes. After a short prologue, Murphy devotes one chapter each to six parallels of direct relevance between ancient Rome and modern America. First, both empires exhibit the symptoms of solipsism, an exaggerated self-identity, the isolating effects of exceptionalism, ignorance about others, the presumptions of privilege, and sheer arrogance. Number two, militarism characterizes both societies. Today, America has 700 bases in 60 countries, and in any one year will conduct operations of some sort in 170 countries. Murphy suggests that our military is both too large to be affordable and too small to do everything it is asked to do. He then turns to how America has blurred the distinctions between the private and public or government sectors, what he calls the deflection of public purpose by private interests. Outsourcing government responsibilities to private interests might be effective and even necessary, but selling the public good for private profit isn't. The fourth parallel between Rome and America is the disdain with which we both view outsiders as inferior. Fifth, Murphy explores the complex notion of borders, both literal and figurative. And in this part of the book, he discusses the complex problem of immigration. Finally, in his epilogue, he examines the inherent complexity of large empires like Rome and America and considers whether they are, in fact, ungovernable. Rome's empire lasted for a thousand years, and in many obvious ways its decline and fall didn't mean it simply disappeared. When I've traveled to places like Egypt or China that have had continuous civilizations for thousands of years, and consider that America is just 200 years old, 
barely a blip on the graph of historical time, I resonate with historically minded people like Murphy about what he calls the brutal reminder of impermanence. I find it hard to imagine what America might look like a mere thousand years from now. For his part, Murphy is not overly pessimistic. He urges the country to be more rather than less like the American our founders imagined. Are We Rome? by Colin Murphy. For film this week, I review The War Tapes from the year 2006. John Burns, the Baghdad bureau chief for the New York Times, calls this film the single best document, book, or article you can see on the war in Iraq. Director Deborah Scranton taught three soldiers from New Hampshire's National Guard, Steve Pink, Mike Moriarty, and the Lebanese-American Zach Bazi, who was fluent in Arabic, taught them how to use a camera, and then edited their 800 hours of war footage down to 97 minutes. The result is a first-person visual narrative of the war in Iraq. It's probably about as close as you can get to experiencing war vicariously, or it ever want to, for that matter. The chaos, the bravado, feelings of helplessness, fear, vulgarity, boredom, and cynicism. Endless rows of charred vehicles in an equipment cemetery. Security escorts protecting convoys of Halliburton trucks carrying septic waste or cheesecake. Children everywhere. And yes, IEDs in daily mortar attacks lobbed into Camp Anaconda. The film documents the stories of the three soldiers from their deployment to their return back to their families, including their post-war symptoms. There are also several takes with their wives and families back home interspersed throughout the film. Parts of this film are very hard to watch. The War Tapes from the year 2006. And finally, for poetry this week, we posted a Celtic morning prayer. I've taken this Celtic morning prayer from Calvin Miller's new book, the title of which is The Path of Celtic Prayer, University Press, 2007. The, the Celtic morning prayer. I will build up my fire today in the presence of the holy angels of heaven in the presence of Iral of most beautiful form, in the presence of Earl of all beauty without hate, without envy, without rivalry, without fear, without horror of anyone under the sun. For I have the Holy Son of God as my sanctuary. O God, enkindle in my inmost heart 
the flaming spark of love for my enemy, for my relative, for my friends, for the wise person, for the foolish person, for the unfortunate person. O son of gentle shining Mary, from the lowest, most perverse person to the one of highest fame. Celtic Morning Prayer. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July the 8th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.